Thank you, Jenny Beth. The Senate will return today and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday if they can get their act together and figure out the continuing resolution in time this week. This week in the House, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up 15 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, Thursday, and possibly Friday, the House will consider another bill under suspension, and then we'll consider H.R. 2988, the Whistleblower Protection Improvement Act of 2021, H.R. 8326, the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act, and H.R. 302, the Preventing a Patronage System Act of 2021. In addition, as mentioned earlier, the House may consider legislation making further appropriations for FY 2023. That is a continuing resolution to keep the government funded and open beyond the end of the current fiscal year on September 30th. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work last Tuesday and agreed to invoke cloture on the nomination of John Z. Lee to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Andre B. Mathis to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Salvador Mendoza to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the nomination of Salvador Mendoza to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see a vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Ariana J. Freeman, to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Late in the week, if bipartisan negotiators tell Leader Schumer they think they have at least 10 Republican votes, we may see a vote to invoke cloture on a motion to proceed to consideration of a bill to codify same-sex marriage as the law of the land. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now to more on the coronavirus overreaction follow-up. A week ago Thursday, CNN reported that the National Assessment of Educational Progress revealed that math and reading scores for nine-year-olds in the United States fell between 20 and 2022 by a significant level not seen in two decades. According to the NAEP scores, the average scores from 2022 were five points lower in reading and seven points lower in math. That's the largest decline in reading scores since 1990 and the first ever recorded decline in math, according to the NAEP. The scores for poorer children were even worse, as were the scores for minority children. For black students, math scores fell by 13 points, while the scores of Hispanic students fell by 8 points. Scores for white children fell by just 5 points. Reading scores for low-income children fell by twice as much as they did for better-off children. The Education Secretary said the drop in scores was directly related to the lack of in-person classroom education that resulted from the government's overreaction to the coronavirus. Of course, he didn't say it exactly that way. Quote, in-person learning is where we need to focus, he said. We need to double down our efforts. I'm very concerned about those scores, and I know that we have the resources now, and we need to maintain the same level of urgency we had two years ago to get our students back in to making sure that our students get support, end quote. 
No word on whether he's had a chance to share his concerns with American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, who led the effort to keep America's schools shuttered. Now to government funding. The end of the fiscal year is approaching fast. That takes place on September 30th, which is less than three weeks away. Before that happens, the Congress must pass and the President must sign a bill making appropriations for the next fiscal year, which begins on October 1. The 12 annual appropriations bills that are supposed to be the means for funding the government are nowhere near passage through both houses of Congress, so the House and Senate will have to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government's doors open and lights on. Now comes the Biden administration with an emergency supplemental appropriations request. The request totals $47.1 billion, and the administration wants that money added to the continuing resolution. The largest chunk of that emergency supplemental is $22.4 billion the White House wants to cover ongoing COVID costs. That would pay for free at-home testing testing kits and would help prepare for what they call a potential fall surge. Of the $22.4 billion, $18.4 billion would go to HHS and $4 billion would go to support foreign efforts. Republicans have fought these supplemental COVID funding requests and have urged the administration instead to take some of the money that's already been previously appropriated for COVID funding and not yet spent. In addition, the administration wants $4.5 billion to combat the spread of monkeypox, with $600 million of that total designated for foreign efforts. Almost $12 billion of the requested $47 billion would go to the Ukraine support effort, with $7.2 billion of that designated for military assistance, and $4.5 billion earmarked for direct budget support for the Ukrainian government. In addition, the administration wants $6.5 billion of the $47 billion supplemental request to go to traditional emergency funding to help communities across the country cope with the consequences of floods, hurricanes, and the like. The House is writing a continuing resolution that would extend government spending at current levels through December 16th. More on the Hunter Biden probe. On Monday, August 29th, that is two weeks ago today, the Washington Times reported that the previous Friday, former FBI agent Timothy Thiebault was escorted from the FBI's Washington field office after abruptly resigning his position. Thiebault, who had reportedly been in charge of the FBI's probe of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, had been on leave for the previous month following revelations about anti-Trump social media posts he had made while heading the FBI's public corruption unit. Now, as promised, more on that same-sex marriage bill. In the wake of the Supreme Court ruling in the Dobbs case, supporters of same-sex marriage have rallied behind federal legislation to codify the Supreme Court decision in the Obergefell case, which guaranteed the right to marry to same-sex couples under both the Due Protection Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. On July 19, the House passed H.R. 8404, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, by a vote of 267 to 157, with 47 Republicans crossing party lines to vote with the Democrats. Prior to that vote, it had been widely assumed there would be no way the bill could pass the Senate. In the wake of the defection of 47 House Republicans on such an important bill, that thinking changed, and supporters of the effort began to focus their efforts on the upper chamber. 
Maine Republican Susan Collins and Ohio Republican Rob Portman, who happens to be retiring at the end of the current session of the Congress, have been leading the efforts on the Republican side. Wisconsin Democrat Tammy Baldwin has been leading the effort for the Democrats. Bipartisan Senate negotiators say they've not yet locked down the 10 Republican votes that would be needed to break a filibuster. But they also say they're confident they will have identified the 10 Republican senators they need within a matter of a few days. They're so confident that Majority Leader Schumer is telling people he thinks he'll be able to get the ball rolling with a motion to proceed by the end of this week, which would set up a floor vote next week. The latest holdup is the necessity to work out a compromise on language to protect the beliefs of religious groups that don't recognize same-sex marriage. Baldwin and Collins are working on an amendment that would clarify that the bill keeps intact the provisions written into the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. As Baldwin put it, the amendment simply, quote, confirms the status quo remains, end quote. Collins was circulating that amendment late last week to interested parties. But that amendment may not be enough to satisfy many Republicans. As a consequence, Utah Republican Mike Lee has a competing amendment that he's shopping. Leader Schumer considered attaching the same-sex marriage bill to the continuing resolution, but supporters of the legislation balked, and so he has now dropped that idea. So if negotiators find their 10 Republican votes and Leader Schumer schedules a floor vote, it will likely be on a standalone piece of legislation. Keep in mind, if it passes the Senate with a religious freedom amendment attached, it would have to go back to the House to be voted on again in its new form. The latest update on the student loan scam. On Labor Day, the Wall Street Journal reported that analysts at the Penn Wharton budget model projected that the Biden plan to have taxpayers assume student loan debt could cost $1 trillion, twice as much as had previously been projected. More on Russia, Ukraine, Russia invades Ukraine. As the action in Ukraine morphed from Russia's attempted blitzkrieg into more of a sitzkrieg, news of the conflict was relegated to the back pages. But action in the last few weeks, and in particular the last few days, by Ukrainian forces to recapture large swaths of territory lost earlier to Russian forces, has thrust news of the conflict back onto the front pages of the world's major newspapers. Seven months ago, in late February, Russian forces attacked Ukraine on three axes and headed for the nation's capital in Kyiv. But Ukrainian forces put up a stronger defense than Russia or even many in the West anticipated. And the Russian attempt to decapitate the Ukraine government and end the war in its first week stalled out. Russian forces then regrouped and began a war of attrition on the eastern and southern regions of the country. Speed and maneuver were replaced by heavy shelling as the Russians decided to simply grind it out the old-fashioned way. As Ukraine's military forces demonstrated their skill and determination, Western military forces began to increase the quantity and sophistication of the weapons made available to Ukraine. The result has been a significant increase in Ukraine's ability to wage war. Two weeks ago, the Washington Post reported that Ukraine was using decoys to dupe Russian forces into wasting expensive long-range cruise missiles on dummy targets. The wooden decoys resemble high-value U.S. rocket systems called High Mobility Artillery Rocket Systems, or HIMARS. Apparently, the decoys are so good that to the cameras of Russian drones, they are indistinguishable from the real things. 
So the drones transmit their locations to naval cruise missile carriers in the Black Sea, and the Russians waste a cruise missile to destroy the equivalent of a wooden duck. Either the Russians don't realize they're wasting cruise missiles on decoys, or they don't care. They're announcing to the world that they're killing HIMARS. But one U.S. diplomat told the Post, quote, they've claimed to have hit more HIMARS than we've even sent. These HIMARS systems have changed the battlefield calculation for both sides. They give Ukraine the ability to target and hit Russian targets from as many as 50 miles away. And that has forced the Russians to change their tactics. Last Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made his second visit to Kyiv since the start of the war. While there, he pledged, quote, we will support the people of Ukraine for as long as it takes, end quote. Now to Joe Biden's terrible speech. A week ago Thursday, Joe Biden got an early start on the traditional Labor Day campaign kickoff when he visited Independence Hall in Philadelphia to give what, by many accounts, was the most divisive speech in the history of a man known for being divisive. During the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations, for instance, Biden referred to Tea Party Republicans as terrorists. A year later, campaigning for re-election, he spoke to a group that included many black voters and said of Republicans, quote, they're going to put y'all back in chains, end quote. Bathed in an eerie red light that conjured memories of newsreel footage of foreign authoritarians, Biden labeled former President Trump and MAGA supporters as enemies and said they posed a threat to democracy. He said MAGA Republicans don't support the Constitution and don't support the rule of law. It was a case of projection unlike any I've witnessed in more than 40 years of witnessing such things. One thing is for sure, it laid to rest once and for all any questions about Joe Biden being a unifying force. Now, finally, to the FBI raid follow-up. On Monday, Federal District Judge Aileen Cannon of the Southern District of Florida granted former President Trump's request for the appointment of a special master to review the 11,000 documents the FBI seized and removed from Mar-a-Lago last month. She also issued an order barring the Justice Department's investigators from using the seized materials for any investigative purpose connected to its investigation of Trump and the special ma- until the special master's work was completed. That was the equivalent of throwing a wet blanket over the, DA- the DOJ investigation into whether President Trump illegally retained national defense information at his estate or obstructed the government's repeated efforts to get them back. Her ruling would permit whoever is appointed as the special master to evaluate the documents, not just to determine if they were protected by attorney-client privilege, but also to determine if they were protected by executive privilege. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. In a 21-page filing, the Justice Department responded on Thursday with a broadside blasting Judge Cannon's ruling. Lawyers for the DOJ announced their intention to appeal parts of her ruling. They asked her to revisit her ruling and threatened that they would appeal those sections of her ruling if she does not do so herself by next Thursday. Specifically, the DOJ lawyers asked Judge Cannon to reverse herself on her decision to temporarily block DOJ investigators from gaining access to the roughly 100 documents that bore classification markings that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. They argued that her ruling was hindering the government's effort to assess whether or not national security had been compromised. 
The DOJ's logic is simple. They indicated they understood Judge Cannon's order was designed to protect items that properly belonged to President Trump. But they take issue with the documents that bear classification markings. In the DOJ's view, those documents belong to the government, not Trump. And so they see no reason why they should be returned at all. And since they see no reason why those documents would ever be returned to Trump, they see no reason why their investigation into the handling of those documents should be paused, even temporarily. Judge Cannon responded late Thursday evening, ordering Trump's legal team to respond to the government's filing by today. Now a quick campaign update. The biggest news since we last talked comes from Georgia, where the three latest public polls in the Senate race show Republican challenger Herschel Walker flipping the race from trailing by a few points to leading by a few points. A Trafalgar Group poll that fielded from August 24 to 27 with 1,079 likely voters and a margin of error of plus or nine, I'm sorry, plus or minus 2.9 percent showed Walker leading Warnock by 48 to 47. An Emerson College poll fielded from August 28 to 29 with 600 likely voters and a margin of error of plus or minus 3.9% showed Walker leading Warnock by 46 to 44. And an insider advantage poll that fielded from September 6 to 7 with 550 likely voters and a margin of error of plus or minus 4.2% showed Walker leading Warnock by 47 to 44. The important thing here is that Warnock, the incumbent, is at 47, 44, and 44 in these three polls. That's not a good place for an incumbent to be eight weeks from the election. In Arizona, Republican challenger Blake Masters seems to have closed the gap a bit. In the last three surveys, he too has narrowed the margin between himself and Democrat incumbent Mark Kelly. In a Trafalgar Group poll that fielded from August 24 to 27 with 1,074 likely voters, and a margin of error of plus or minus 2.9%, Kelly led by 48 to 44. In an insider advantage survey that fielded from September 6 to 7 with 550 likely voters and a margin of error of plus or minus 4.2%, Kelly led by 45 to 39, and in an Emerson College poll that fielded from September 6 to 7 with 627 likely voters and a margin of error of plus or minus 3.9%, Kelly led by 47 to 45. Again, the important thing here is in the last two of these three surveys, the incumbent is polling at 45 and 47%. Again, not a good place to be for an incumbent. In Nevada, The last three polls show a very tight race, but the most recent of those polls is from three weeks ago. And in the last three polls in Wisconsin, where our good friend Senator Ron Johnson, Republican, is running for re-election to a third term, the surveys show a tight race with Johnson trailing. But again, we haven't had a new survey released there in three weeks, so I'm going to confine myself to saying it's a tight race. And that's our Washington report and our campaign update for this week.